Well, good morning, church family. Pastor Mikey here. I'm obviously not with you in person today as much as I wish I could be. Uh, if you didn't know, Rebecca and I are at home sick with COVID. Uh, we got it this past week and have been isolating this past week, so I've just been working from home. Uh, we're finishing up our isolation period. We're starting to feel a little bit better, and so hopefully in the next couple days, uh, we can start hanging out with some of you again in person. And so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your compassionate thoughts. Uh, thank you for everything you've been doing to help us this past week. Uh, just love and appreciate you guys so much as a church family. Uh, but at the same time, just because I'm gone from you in person, I, I still wanted to bring the Word of God to you this morning. It's sort of bringing me back to the the very first few months of COVID where we were online completely. And as much as I despise preaching to a, a camera and not having people in the room, uh, it is what it is. And uh, I just want to still bless you guys. And so hopefully this morning uh, is an encouragement to you and uh, just examining the Word of God together. And so we have been walking through the book of Acts together. And Acts is the story of the history of the early church. And it's absolutely fascinating to read some of the historical accounts about this movement of Christianity. Uh, you just ponder, first of all, what is going on at this point of history where we have a person named Jesus absolutely transform everything. And it's fascinating because Jesus was this person who in terms of power and influence uh, absolutely should have not transformed this world. And yet exactly what we see is Jesus having an impact more than anyone else in history. Uh, when you think about it, Jesus was tying in this, born in this tiny irrelevant town in the Roman Empire. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the town where he was born. Uh, in today's world, to have influence, you need social media and podcasts and videos and websites, and Jesus had none of that. Uh, he never even held a political office. He never ruled a nation. He never led an army. He never even authored a book. I mean, his family was insignificant. Um, he didn't have this expensive education. He didn't have all this possessions of wealth. Um, he was this man who was abandoned by his even disciples. He was a man who had the public opinion turned completely against him. He was rejected by religious leaders. He suffered an unfair trial. Uh, he was publicly humiliated. He was brutally beaten. He was executed in this horrific way. Uh, and yet, we see history literally shift after the life of Jesus. In fact, we even base our calendar bringing what we call the common era today because of Jesus. And so how could this single man named Jesus have this massive impact? And you know what? The story continues in the book of Acts of how crazy this movement of the church really is because the same things that puzzles historians with Jesus is the exact same things that puzzles historians with the early church. Because the group that Jesus left behind was this relatively small. None of them were very influential people. They were fishermen. They were carpenters. Uh, Christianity didn't advance through conquest. 
Uh, for the first 400 years, no one picked up a sword. It was completely pacifistic as a movement. Uh, Christianity didn't make its followers rich. In fact, it usually led them to losing their homes and fortunes. Uh, the Romans would often put church leaders in prisons. They fed Christians to lions and burnt them at the stakes. It was horrific what was happening to the church. And yet, it produced this movement unlike the world has ever seen. And we see the church welcoming outcasts of society. They had these first multiracial communities on the planet. They taught that all people were of equal worth in the eyes of God, whether you were Jew or non-Jew, Gentile, whether you were rich or poor, whether you were a master or a slave, whether you were a man or a woman. There was this beautiful community that the church created. And so Acts then is the story of how this early community of Jesus followers spread the good news of Jesus Christ over all the world. And as the historian Luke tells us this massive story of the early church expanding throughout the world, he stops and he reflects on a few key questions that the church had to address. And as the church is spreading throughout the world, a major question that had to be addressed was simply, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, we have so many presuppositions today even about how to answer that question and uh, how have we answered it in the past relatively to how we answer it today and what are some struggles that the church has faced in answering that question. We're going to look at some of those things. But first of all, what I want to do is I want to look at this question from a certain situation the early church faced. And then afterwards, I want to bring that question, what does it mean to be a Christian in our own context today? And so historically, what is going on in Acts that brings up the question? Well, let's look at Acts 15. Now, as we're entering into this text together, what was happening is that Paul and Barnabas, who were helping the church in Antioch, the first non-Jewish church, this incredibly multi-ethnic cultural church, they are sent out of Antioch to preach about Jesus and plant churches around the world. And they're incredibly successful at it, but then an issue arises, And here we read about it in Acts chapter 15. And so let's read Acts chapter 15 together. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching to the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, there was this major conflict going on, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order in, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
So what's what's going on in this story right now? What's happening in the life of the early church? Well, here's the issue that's arising. A lot of the first Christians were Jews. We've been reading about this through the story of the Acts. And there were laws in the Old Testament that needed to be kept as a Jew. There were actually 613 Jewish ritual laws. And circumcision was one of them. Every Jewish male had to be circumcised. And circumcision to a Jew was a sign that separated them as the people of God. And so a lot of these new Jewish Christians were teaching that if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to follow Jesus and experience his salvation, if you really want to be part of God's people, then you have to follow the law of Moses, specifically circumcision. You have to fulfill the Jewish ritual laws before you can become a Christian. Well, Paul and Barnabas and the apostles see this as such a distortion of what Jesus taught. And so there's this massive theological argument over this because it answers the question, how do you become a Christian in a very false way? And so they argue and debate in a meeting in the church called the Jerusalem Council, which is this very important meeting in church history. And what they do is clarify what does it mean to become a Christian. And so let's for, read a little further in verse 6 together. So it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, who was a main apostle, a very primary leader in the church, he stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. In other words, giving us his presence as Gentiles, just as he did to the Jews. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's a key word that Peter uses, cleanse their hearts by faith. Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so we see Peter, this key leader in the early church, a man who had spent a great amount of time with Jesus. He gets up to clarify what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, first of all, that the good news of Jesus is for the whole world. Jesus isn't just for the Jews. Yes, Jesus was a Jew, but the good news of Jesus isn't just for the Jewish people. Peter says that anyone can come to faith in Jesus. And it's by faith in God's grace which saves you. It's not by becoming a Jew. And then second, here's Peter's next major point. Peter says that when we, as Jews, could never keep the law anyway. And Peter says, even us as Jews, we could never keep all the rules and regulations on, as Jews. Why would we impose it on others? Jesus has freed us from that. 
And he uses this beautiful language in verse 10 where he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, this heavy burden, so to say, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, Peter is saying the law was something we could never obey perfectly anyway. We were always failing. It was a constant burden that we could carry, that we couldn't carry on our own. Why would we impose that on anyone else? And so you, you realize Peter's reminding them that God gave the law, not so that people could be saved through the law, but the purpose of the law itself that God gave in the Old Testament was to show how humanity could not fulfill the law on our own. We could never be perfect. Therefore, the law showed us our need for God's salvation. And you think about this in your own life. What, what hope do you have to be a perfect individual? None of us are perfect. None of us could say that we have no flaw or no sin or nothing to confess or no guilt or no shame or no regrets. None of us are perfect in any capacity. And the law shows us that. And that was the purpose of the law. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, I have fulfilled the law, what he is saying is, I have done something that no other human could do. And that's why he, he uses the language of come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You hear that language from Peter too, right? This comparison he's making to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus says, I have fulfilled in perfection the law. Jesus was the only human to ever live a perfect life. And Jesus' yoke is easy because he is the one who obeyed the law perfectly. He was the one who fulfilled all the requirements of the law that we as humans never could. And after he lived this perfect life, he laid his life down as a sacrifice for us as humans for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we fail but Jesus succeeds. And all we need to do to be saved then is what Peter is saying, is we need to receive the grace, the gift that God alone offers. Jesus did everything to give us salvation. It's a gift. It's grace. It's good news. And so really the, the main question is to become a Christian, is there anything else we must do on top of faith in Jesus and experiencing his grace? And, and Peter answers that question with a definitive no. No. Therefore, the third thing that Peter says is that salvation is from God. And the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus has always been about faith. In other words, being a good person, doing the right things, Following the ritual and moral law of Judaism could never save. It's only in Jesus that we find salvation. And no matter who you are, you can experience that salvation. 
And that's what purifies us. That's what brings us into a right relationship with God. And there's nothing that we can do above and beyond what Jesus has done to bring salvation to us. And that is the great news of the gospel, that we have been made right with God and are saved from our sins because of Jesus on the cross. He is the one that gives us the gift of salvation. So then we read right after that, verse 12. Verse 12, there's absolute shock in the crowd, in the council meeting. Verse 12, we read, And all the assembly fell silent. They fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. There was silence because they realized they needed grace. And that grace was found through Jesus. They were reminded of the gospel that they could never be good enough for God, and yet God had loved them so much that he made it possible for them to be in restored relationship with him. And they heard all these stories of Paul and Barnabas, how so many people had been transformed by God's grace working in their lives, and they were just so excited and so passionate about what was going on. And so after they had finished speaking, verse 13, it tells us this. tells us that James, James, who is the brother of Jesus, very crucial person as well, he replied by saying this. He said, brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simon, and he's talking about Peter. Peter is the one that just spoke. Peter has related how God's first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. Now he's quoting the Old Testament to prove his point. And he's quoting prophets like Amos and Jeremiah. And he says this in verse 16, quoting them. He says, after this, I will return, talking about God, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so James' voice is absolutely crucial here because here Jewish Christians have been taught all their lives that Gentiles were unclean and that Jews were the people of God. This is what Jews had experienced their entire life. So now that they had become Christians, there's all these questions But what James does here by quoting the Old Testament prophet Amos and Jeremiah is remind those in the meeting in Jerusalem that God had sent repeated messages over and over again in the history of the Jews that Gentiles could be saved too and be made members of the people of God. And that has happened through Jesus Christ. And so James is saying, God has told us from day one what he is doing. How can we ignore it? God has always been about salvation for every tribe, tongue, nation on earth, and it comes through faith in Jesus alone. Therefore, verse 19 says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And that's a key point I'm going to pick up later but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barasbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. This is what the letter said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in the Gentiles of Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. In other words, here's the issue of the church right now is, is we need to figure out how these Gentiles and these Jewish Christians can function in unity together. And this is what was proposed. It says, verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, that you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. And, and so here's the consensus of the council meeting, this massive council that needed to clarify what it means to become a Christian. They have reminded themselves that God does not require all these extra rules and regulations. It doesn't require following the 613 laws, the ritual laws of the Jews to be a follower of Jesus. One simply needs faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation. That's clear. That's the gospel. They've come to consensus. They've come to agreement on that 100%. But there's still an issue that has to be dealt with in this early church. How does this Jewish Christian church, which has all these convictions, and the Gentile Christian church still fellowship? and gather in unity despite these differences that they have. And so these clarifying couples, uh, these clarifying comments are, are quite crucial for understanding that restore, restored relationship between these two churches. And so basically what they're saying is it would be wise for the Gentile church not to have immoral sex, which makes sense to us, but the next one not so much, and don't eat meat strangled and sacrificed to idols. In other words, false gods. Now, that sort of seems random to us. And even why bring up sexual immorality specifically? Why, why bring up meat specifically? Uh, well, we have to remember the historical context here. We have to remember that in the pagan Gentile world, sexual immorality was common and not seen as wrong. And so adultery and prostitution, etc. These things were seen as normal and not sinful, and yet it was against the moral law of God. 
and it would have been a defilement for a Jew to associate with this. And so because it was so common and accepted in the culture, the, the council reminds the Gentile church that the moral laws of God don't change. Morality and ethics still matter for the church. And just because we are not bound to these 613 religious laws of the Jews doesn't mean that morality and ethics are ignored. And you have to be mindful of that when there is a Jew among you, when you have people who have committed adultery and had sexual sin, these things have to be confessed and dealt with. Otherwise, a Jew will feel like they're in the presence of someone who is um, making them defile themselves. And so very crucial for the unity of the Jews and Gentiles. Now, the next thing they would say would be wise for the Gentile church is to not eat meat strangled and sacrificed to idols, these false gods. Now, it seems strange to us, but this is a way of saying that there are cultural things that would be really offensive to the Jewish Christians. And this is a major one. This, this is not how Jews would eat meat. There, there would be no blood. Um, it, it would be like you, you can't have this medium rare steak in front of them. That would be defilement. It would have to be fully boiled, fully cooked. And so these Gentile Christians first of all, have to acknowledge when they're sitting at a table and fellowship and eating with these Gentile Christians, they need to pay attention to what might be offensive to them. See, the Jews were raised to not eat meat like this, and so the council says be gracious towards them and don't cause any fellowship issues. And maybe a common example that we could compare this to today would be like if you have someone over for dinner one night and you're having this church party. And this person is someone who has struggled with alcoholism. Uh, they are trying to free themselves from addiction. And they have this uh, sinful struggle with alcohol. And you pull out a bottle of wine and you start downing it in front of them or even offering it to them. Uh, that's going to not be helpful for their spiritual maturity, their spiritual growth. And you're actually doing something that could cause offense and even cause sin in their life. And it's the same concept that the Gentile church is called to with the Jewish church. And so what we see here then is this beautiful picture of what it means to be the Christian community. We actually see right from the very beginning of this Christian movement, the goal was to lay down our own personal rights for the good of others. Because what, what we can't see James doing here, James isn't here laying down some ritualistic law for the Gentiles to keep. He's, he's already said, no, we are saved by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone. But what James is saying He's saying, you need to consider your brothers and sisters in Christ and don't do anything around them that would cause an offense or, or cause them to feel like they were betraying their very faith in Jesus. That's what the passage is getting at. And so what happens next? Verse 30, we, we read this happening. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered this letter, the letter that I just read. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And, and the reason for rejoicing is because there was no longer this heavy burden of Jewish law that they could not keep. And they realized that what they were being taught by these Jewish Christians weren't true. It wasn't the gospel. It wasn't what Jesus wanted. And they realized that it's salvation through faith in Christ alone, through his grace alone. That's what was confirmed. And the good news of Jesus brought this unity to the church. Beautiful. Verse 32, Then Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. In other words, they, they spoke words of encouragement to the church, exactly what we talked about last week with Barnabas. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That's the story of scripture uh, for this morning, and it's absolutely beautiful one. And so we have to ask this question then. We've looked at this historical context and we've seen this historical story of what the early church had to deal with in defining what it means to be a Christian. And so what insight does a historical give us as the church today? What are some key passages and phrases and understandings that this situation sheds light on today? Well, I think the first thing we have to do in realizing the significance of the story is to recognize first of all that the church proclaims God's grace is enough let me say that again the church proclaims that God's grace is enough Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus he would write this he says for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, salvation, relationship with God is all about God's grace. And the problem we all face as Christians is trying to make ourselves look better than we really are. Be honest with yourself. And when we do that, we lose the essence of the gospel and how greatly we need Jesus in our life. And when we put on this facade of how to be a good Christian and we act like we have our lives together and we pretend everything is perfect, all we are doing is losing the need for Jesus in our own lives. And not only does this make us lose the gospel and especially applying the gospel and knowing the gospel in our own lives, but it also makes it difficult for others to come to God. See, the, the, the beauty of the gospel is that when we place our trust in what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, that he died for our sins so that we could be made right with God, that is what transforms us. That is what purifies us. I mean, think about it. The, the last words of Jesus on the cross was, it is finished. The, the last words of Jesus weren't, I'm dying for your sins, now go make yourself better. I'm dying for your sins, now go fulfill all these ritualistic laws. No, it is finished. 
that is good news because that means there's nothing we can do to restore our relationship with God. I mean, what could you do? What can we do? How do we as rebellious sinners restore a relationship with a holy, almighty God? And as much as we even try to restore our relationship with God and with others in this world, we fail over and over again. And so again, we need God and God in grace and mercy does it for us. And so here's what that means for us today. We are always having this debate in our mind. We're always trying to add law and rules and regulation where God gives us grace. And one of the reasons we need to hear the gospel consistently and constantly is because we always slip back into self-salvation mode. I mean, there is a reason self-help books are the best-selling books in our culture. There's a reason self-help books are so prominent. Because everyone is trying to make themselves better. Everyone realizes that there's flaws, imperfections in their lives, and everyone is trying to save and rescue their lives. Everyone is trying to make their lives perfect, but the question that we have to face is, can we actually make ourselves better? We can't save ourselves. If you had to save yourself, how could you ever be so sure that you were good enough? How could you ever know that you obeyed God enough? How could you ever know you always did the right thing or made the right decision? You couldn't. But God saves us by grace in Christ. So it doesn't depend upon you anymore. It depends upon God. See, becoming a Christian is not coming to a set of ideas or behaviors. Becoming a Christian is not a philosophy. It's not a, a moral shift. It's coming to a person. It's coming to a relationship. It's coming to faith and trust in Jesus to save you. There is nothing we add to it. And so becoming a Christian is all about being transformed by Jesus. Very key. I think the, the next major thing that we have to realize that this story in the book of Acts teaches us as the church today is that we as the church must always have a focus on mission over our cultural preferences. See, this is a very key verse, verse 19. This is what we hear. It says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble. In other words, we can't make it difficult for those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And I believe this is a crucial statement for the church today. It's really the principle that we evaluate any obstacle that keeps people from Jesus. That we evaluate anything in the church, in our culture, in our traditions, in our actions, in our words, in our language. Evaluate anything that could keep people from Jesus. Because we have to realize and we have to confess that there are many cultural preferences that we hold on to that have nothing to do with Jesus. 
And we can so easily have cultural preferences in the church without even realizing it. We can have preferences for how people dress. We can have preferences for music styles in our worship. We can have preferences for leadership structures and styles. We can have preferences for what's supposed to happen or not happen on Sunday gatherings. We can have preferences for traditions practice. We can have preferences for so many cultural things and the list can go on and on and on. And sadly, what we have seen in history is how destructive it is when culture instead of gospel is thrust onto people. We see in history how easily Anglo-Christian missions can turn into colonization. We see even in Canada how residential schools can turn into cultural conformity rather than relationship with Creator. We see how easily churches can become mono-ethnic rather than the multi-ethnic vision of Scripture. And sadly, we see in the history of the church that it's not just the early church of Acts that struggles with these things, but even the church today. And this is where we must constantly be drawn back to the centrality of the gospel because we as the church must never pursue conformity. We must always be pursuing the transformation that only comes through Jesus Christ. And today this means we are not to make areas of our lifestyle that are not spelled out in Scripture normative for others. If they're supposed to be a good Christian or even a Christian at all, we must do everything to keep our tradition and culture and heritage from keeping people from having a relationship with Jesus. And we need to be constantly thinking about how we welcome people into knowing Jesus and ridding ourselves of everything that makes people feel like there is no place for them to belong and if you're someone who's visiting this morning if you're someone who's exploring christianity uh, i pray that our church would be this place this space where you would have a sense of belonging and that we would have nothing that would hinder you from coming into a relationship with christ with the god who loves you the God who cares for you, but the God who wants to have a restored relationship with you. And if that is you this morning, I pray that um, you would have that conversations with others this morning. Even feel free to give me an email or give me a call um, if these are questions you have about what it means to be in a relationship with God. So let me close by saying this, especially to us as the church. Over and over again, in our individual lives and the life of us as a church, we have to be reminded of the need of the gospel. We need to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ because we forget, we distort, and really what we do on a weekly basis as the church is so simple. The, the reason we, we gather consistently, especially on Sunday mornings as the church, is because we remind each other of the good news of Jesus. We remind one another of the greatest news the world has ever known. We are talking about a perfect God who has loved an imperfect people. We are talking about an all-knowing, all-powerful, infinite creator God who created us as humans to live in relationship with him. 
And we confess that we, like all humans, have distorted that relationship by telling God we don't need him, by telling God we can do life better on our own. However, the reality is that we desperately need God. And God is so gracious enough that he makes a way to restore relationship with us. And Jesus comes to die for our sin, comes to die for our rebellion against God, so that we could be forgiven and experience restoration with God, with others, and with creation. And so my prayer for us, church, is that we would be a people who are constantly returning over and over again to the good news of Jesus. And that we would be wise enough to see anything that could draw others away from that good news. And that we would submit ourselves to the grace of God so that we could be a gracious people offering the name of Jesus to everyone who so desperately needs it. God bless you all. I miss you all. Hopefully I'll be with you in person in the next few days. Bless you all. Let me just pray for us as we end this time together. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we praise you that you are a God of grace. And as we look to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for our sin and our salvation, we'd realize that there's nothing we can do to add to it. And so I pray for all of us who feel like we are not enough, that we're not good enough, that we don't belong, that we can never be accepted by the church or by you, God, yourself. I pray that you would remind us all that there's nothing we could do to restore relationship with you. But you are a God who is so gracious that you have gifted us with your grace, with your salvation, through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Remind us of the gospel every day we pray. 